0: From Public Radio International, I'm Jackie Leiden, and this is America Abroad. The Syrian Civil War has been raging for almost four years now. But on Christmas Eve, eyes turned to Syria's neighbor to the south, the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan
1: news today that a Jordanian pilot was taken prisoner by ISIS. Flight Lieutenant Moaz Yusuf al-Qasasbeh was flying a coalition mission near the Syrian city of Raqqa when his plane went down. It's still not clear what happened.
0: AL-Qasasbeh's father, Safi Yusuf al-Qasasbeh, has made an appeal to treat his son safely.
1: HE IS NOW IN THE HANDS OF ISLAMIC STATE FIGHTERS, AND I DO NOT WANT TO DESCRIBE HIM AS A HOSTAGE. I CALL HIM A GUEST. He is a guest among brothers of ours in Syria's Islamic State. I ask them in the name of God, and I ask with the dignity of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, to receive him as a guest and treat him
0: well." Unfortunately, these religious and cultural bonds have not been enough to stop ISIS from committing savage acts against Muslims and non-Muslims alike. This is why Jordan is one of the five Arab nations that's joined in the fight against the Islamic State. ISIS, in turn, has demanded that Jordan abandon its efforts as a condition for Al-Qasayz release. That demand is unlikely to be met, as Jordan's King Abdullah has been working hard to build opposition to ISIS from within the Arab world, as he told CBS this past December.
2: We really have to have a, a pan uh, regional approach to this issue. This is a a Muslim problem. Uh, We need to take ownership of this. Uh, We need to stand stand up and say what is right and what is wrong. Uh, This is uh, no reflection of our religion. Uh, This is evil. Um, And all of us have got to make that decision. We have to stand up and say uh, this is uh, the line that is drawn in the sand and those that believe in right should stand on this side. Um, And those that don't have to make a decision stand on the other. It's clearly a fight between uh, good and evil.
0: ISIS, which is also called ISIL, has been under heavy fire since its very public beheadings of two American journalists, Stephen Sotloff and James Foley, in late summer. President Obama outlined America's strategy for combating the group in a White House statement that came on September the 10th.
3: I can announce that America will lead a broad coalition to roll back this terrorist threat. Our objective is clear. We will degrade and ultimately destroy ISIL through a comprehensive and sustained counterterrorism strategy.
0: Just over a week later, the U.S. began airstrikes against the Islamic State in Syria in collaboration with its allies in the region. These include Jordan, Bahrain, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, and the United Arab Emirates. However, there seems to be no end in sight to the fighting in Syria, which has in turn led to an unprecedented refugee crisis as nearly 3 million Syrians seek safety from both the regime of Bashar al-Assad and the Islamic State. 650,000 Syrians have fled to Jordan alone. Twelve-year-old Sami arrived in the Zatari refugee camp along Jordan's border with Syria in 2013. He spoke with a reporter from Voice of America. In the
2: last three weeks in Syria, we were living on bulgur, tomatoes, and sometimes there was a car that brought bread, but it was very expensive. What can I say? The situation was dark and difficult.
0: Today on America Abroad, we hear directly from people in Jordan about what they think of the refugee crisis, the threat from ISIS, and what the international community should be doing to help. Coming up, I'm joined by my co-host Yusuf Mansour and studio audiences from W H Y Y in Philadelphia and Jordan Media City in Amman for an international town hall. We're calling it Jordan on the Frontline. Here's our conversation, which we recorded earlier before Al Bay was taken hostage. We began the discussion by greeting both audiences. Hello, Philly and Mahaba, Amman. Before we begin, let's take a moment to place Jordan on a map because Jordan's location has everything to do with our conversation today. Jordan sits right at the center of the Middle East, and that's really not an exaggeration. To the southeast is Saudi Arabia. Jordan has very important neighbors. To the northeast is Iraq. Israel and the Palestinian territories lie to the west, and Syria is to the north, and this does place Jordan on the front line of the Syrian war and in the crosshairs of the international fight against the rising Islamic State. Yet for all the conflict in the region, and I've lived there, Jordan itself has remained relatively stable. This central and moderate state has been one of America's key Arab allies in the Middle East for many, many years.
4: This is true, Jackie, and our stability has made our country a haven for refugees. In fact, this has been going on for many decades now. The number of non-Jordanians in the country right now makes about uh, 40% of the population. The population
0: population. of Jordan stands at about 6.5 million right now, and a full 10% of that population is made up of refugees coming in from Syria, about 650,000 people just in the last few years since 2011.
4: Um, Hundreds. There's hundreds, even thousands of refugees that cross the border every month. This puts a lot of pressure on our... um, very limited resources, Uh, it makes for tough times in the country. And it's just one of the issues that we'll be uh, talking about today.
0: So let's start with a quick introduction of our panelists and we're going to go to Jordan. Yusuf. would you please introduce your guests?
4: Thank you, Jackie. Here in Amman, we have Andrew Harper of the United Nations Refugee Agency, UNHCR. He's been at the front line of the refugee issue And uh, he will be discussing the impact of the Syrian refugees on the Jordanian people economy and uh, the overall environment and the kind of pressure it's putting on the Jordanian people. Jackie, who do you have there in Philadelphia?
0: Yusuf, joining me here on stage is Faisal Atani. Faisal is a resident fellow with the Rafiq Hariri Center for the Middle East at the Atlantic Council in Washington. Faisal, you in fact are from Lebanon. I think you hail from Beirut. Of course, Lebanon is Syria's close neighbor. That's a whole other relationship. And obviously, the refugee crisis is not happening in a vacuum. I mean, refugees don't become refugees unless there is trouble. And this is a direct result of the war in Syria, which isn't expected to end anytime soon. Could you, I know this is a tough one, provide some context for us? Uh, Can the international community make any progress in Jordan (coughs) while the war rages on?
2: Limited progress. I think uh, as long as there is robust financial support for the Jordanian state, but I think more importantly, as long as there is a situation within the Syrian war in which the southern theater of the war is somewhat less toxic than other areas of the country where jihadist groups have been able to take root and establish institutions. I think the geography of the the Syrian war is actually really the critical thing.
0: Thank you so much, Faisal. And I also have here Sean Yum. Sean Yum is a professor at Temple University, and his work focuses on Middle East politics. Welcome, Sean. What would you say is the United States' top priority with regard to Syria and Jordan right now?
5: I would say America's top priority in Washington is to make sure Syria is controllable in terms of the externalities of that civil war, making sure that refugee flows don't inundate the border, making sure that the externalities of jihadist activity don't uh, flow over to Jordan and endanger its security, And I would say America's priority with Jordan is what it's always been uh, since the U.S. has been involved in Jordan's foreign policy since the 1950s, which is ensure the survival of the regime, ensure the political stability of this kingdom, and make sure that Jordan's borders remain secure and uh, viable.
0: Thank you Sean. Yusuf, perhaps we'd like to ask Andrew how this compares to other conflicts and what what that pressure looks and feels like for an agency like UNHCR's refugee agency in Jordan, Andrew?
1: Well, firstly, thank you for having us on today. And I think it's particularly important given the US's very close relationship with Jordan. And I must add if it wasn't for the US, we'd be in a much more difficult position. As Yusuf mentioned at the start, the Syrian influx is just one of many influxes that Jordan has absorbed over the last, basically since Jordan's inception. We've had Palestinians, we've had Iraqis, we've had Syrians, and now we're also being confronted with another influx of Iraqis. So it's not only that Jordan's on the front line at the moment, Jordan has always been on the front line. And when we look at support to Jordan, we cannot look at just an emergency support. Everyone has seen the refugee camps established in Jordan. But what we need to do is ensure that we not only protect the refugees who have been so generously hosted in Jordan, but we also ensure that Jordan's tradition of generosity is not taken for granted.
4: Thank you, Andrew. We also have uh, Dr. Uh, Mohammed uh, Abrahman. He's a political analyst and writer. In 30 seconds, can you tell us the impact of the Syrian refugee crisis on the politics and society in Jordan? In 30 seconds, I oh, think 30 that minutes, 30, <laughs> hours. No, 30 seconds.
6: Okay. <laughs> I think it's a huge and big challenge to Jordanian politics. It's one of the most important issues that Jordan suffered from. The refugees put the pressures on the economy, of course, but on the politics also and in the security level. Uh, You talk about uh, hundreds of thousands of refugees coming here. Uh, You don't have a database about uh, most of them. So that I think we can talk about many dimensions when we talk about the refugees to uh, what they mean to Jordan these days.
4: Thank you, Dr. Mohammed.
0: Yusuf, I understand that in your audience, you have a number of members in the audience who live in Erbil, a city about an hour and a half north of Amman, very close to the Syrian border.
4: Yes, we do. Uh, who shall we start with first? We have Alaa Hamdan. She is a journalist who works with refugees. Alaa, would you like? Hello, my name is
7: Alaa Hamdan. I've volunteered a little bit with uh, refugees at the Zaatari refugee camp, which is the first camp that officially Come opened on, for head. refugees. And I mostly worked with women and children, and seeing the children that some of them have lost two or three years of education, um, seeing women not able to give proper housing or even raising their children properly as they used to in Syria just shows you how much troubles a whole generation might be resulted out of refugee camps. Uh, most of the refugees at the Zata in refugee back. camp are children. Fifty percent are under the age of 18. It's the fourth, I think, or fifth biggest city in Jordan now. So it's mostly for refugees. I don't know how Mr. Andrew handles that every single day, going to that Very camp badly. and seeing all this. But I know things have improved. I've been there since it opened 2012, and I've been there a few weeks ago. And I know it's um, becoming better, but how
4: good can a camp be? Okay, thank you, Ella. Andrew, would you like to say something?
1: No, I, I think um, what was, I was just said was was perfect. We're, we're at risk of losing a generation of Syrian children. And if we don't provide them with a future, if we don't provide them with hope, what happens to them? It has to be something which the international community takes more responsibility for. We need to have many more schools being built because the investment now will pay dividends in the future.
4: And we'll ask you about that. Go ahead, please.
7: Okay, my name is Marah Shawarbe. First, about schools. We have lots of children in the refugees, and the number exceeds, so that the teachers in the school are start uh, doing two shifts, so the students can go to the schools. uh, We need now efficient and
4: effective uh, solution. Thank you. Jackie, let's hear more from your audience there in Philadelphia.
0: I'd like to take questions from our audience, but I think if you don't mind, I'll begin uh, with another member of the audience who is a Jordanian journalist, Salome Namak, is joining us today. And I know you've been looking at this uh, situation closely. Can you talk a little bit about the pressures that the kingdom is undergoing?
3: Well, clearly, uh, Jordan is having to deal with a number of challenges. We need to keep in mind that Jordan uh, was the fourth poorest country in water resources. Now it has dropped to the third. Uh, This humanitarian crisis has also exacerbated the unemployment problem in Jordan. It has increased the security burden on the Jordanian security establishment because of having to monitor not only now the Jordanian-Syrian borders, but also the Jordanian-Iraqi borders. With the rise of the Islamic State and basically both Iraq and Syria nearing status of a failed state, Jordan is having problems coordinating with the other side, which doesn't exist in most of the time.
0: Thank you so much. I'd just like to remind our audience that a refugee crisis is a holistic one, and Jordan is dealing with the largest refugee crisis since World War II. Faisal, Jordan has dealt with refugees for so many years, so how does this crisis differ from, say, the Iraqi influx of 2003 and on, and other earlier ones? What's different about this one?
2: From what I know of the Iraqi presence, the demographic was a bit different. Uh, This is an overwhelmingly impoverished and large and... I think critically, very long-term problem. Uh, I don't see anything on the horizon that would allow these people to return. And even if the war ended tomorrow, there's not much to go back to in many of these areas. So I think it's the timeline and the nature of the presence.
0: So we're talking about a very long-term population. Uh, Yusuf, maybe one of your guests uh, could address the economic impact.
1: Andrew, would you like to address that? I think we've got to look at the One is that Jordan, even before the crisis, had a deficiency in regards to the numbers of hospitals and schools and infrastructure because unlike many other countries in the Middle East it's not a wealthy nation in regards to natural resources, it's, it's wealth in regards to generosity but it's had to rely on trade with Iraq which is now stopped, trade with Syria which is now stopped and in addition having hundreds of thousands of more Syrians. So this has, has had an impact on, on every element, That one the economy has suffered from the lack of trade. But also, there's been increasing competition for work, increasing competition for accommodation, which has driven up prices. The international community has provided um, a significant amount of support, but there's no doubt that the refugees are putting an immense amount of pressure on water, um, electricity, and overall infrastructure. So the costs are difficult to estimate, but it's got to be in the hundreds of millions of dollars. You, I think
0: all of these challenges, the long-term unemployment, the poverty, the competition for already limited resources, as we've been hearing, are the kinds of problems, I can say as a, a erstwhile Middle East correspondent, that can fester and lead to radicalism. And I'd like to ask Sean, what humanitarian aid or other kinds of holistic aid is needed to temper radicalism within Jordan's borders?
5: Jackie, that's a very good question and it's difficult to connect, in my mind, issues of purely humanitarian assistance with issues of ideological extremism or of uh, militancy because oftentimes humanitarian aid isn't used properly but in terms of you know moderating or attempting to ameliorate the kind of poor material conditions that we often see in many refugee stricken areas including the Zaatari refugee camp which to my count is now the third largest city in Jordan after Amman and Irbid it would require providing Jordan uh, with all of the basic consumables and fungible funds Jordan needs to provide a basic standard of living uh, for the refugees. Um, This refugee crisis is far more serious, in my mind, than the Iraqi refugee crisis. The Iraqi refugees were fleeing the breakdown of order by a post-war transition government. The Syrian refugees are fleeing from the collapse of a state and their return to Syria if there is a return is contingent upon the recreation of some viable state project that can provide security and services. But the only real contender that we see in Syria that still could possibly do that in the near future would be their very regime that caused this problem in the first place which is the Assad regime.
0: Um, anything that anyone in that audience might like to add? Yusuf?
5: My
7: name is riham Fakhouri. I'm a reporter at the right newspaper, I've been covering the issue of refugees, and I've seen so many refugees in the in the I'm camps sorry. and the outside the camps. And I feel that people are getting despaired, and they want to go back, even if they have to go with the uh, Assad regime. So if this continues, more Syrians will go, even if the war
4: doesn't stop. Thank you. So some people are going back, um, even though that the situation has not ebbed because they're despairing.
0: All right. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we are going to talk about the rise of the Islamic State around Jordan and its impact on the country. Thank you, everyone. Welcome back to Jordan on the Frontline, an international town hall from America abroad and the Jordan Media Institute. I'm your co-host, Jackie Leiden, and I'm joined by a live audience here in Philadelphia and one in Amman, Jordan. Our host there is Yusuf Mansour. Hello to everyone, or mahabha. <laughs> We want to pick up the conversation now to talk about the rise of the Islamic State in the region, also known as ISIS or ISIL. There's a lot of uh, confusion actually about the name. Yusuf, what is the organization referred to, if I can call it an organization, referred to there?
4: Uh, we in Jordan refer to ISIS as Daesh, which is an Arabic acronym for ISIS. My guest here, political analyst Dr. Mohammed Abu Rumman, is an expert on these extremist groups. And uh, I would like uh, for him to uh, tell us a little bit about their impact on the political life in Jordan and Jordanians.
6: We talk about uh, now uh, 2,000 Jordanians. They are fighting with Jabhat al-Nusra and with ISIS in Iraq and
4: Syria. They went through Turkish borders to join these groups there. Dr. Mohamed, why do you think they are being radicalized? 2,000 is a a good number.
6: Yeah, it's a huge number, which uh, shocked us here in Jordan in this short period. Um, uh, Many people feel uh, sympathy with the Syrians, with Iraqis, feel that they're suffering from um, a huge struggle, a dramatic struggle. And when they look to the situation there, they try to help them. And second, there is an economic social condition in Jordan. Internal issues here also affected on many people the youth or the youngs. They look to outside to figure out the question of identity. By the way, it's not only in Jordan. If you look to the all of the region, radicalization is spreading all over the region these days.
4: Thank you, thank you, Dr. Hamad. We have uh, one question in the back. Can we pass the mic?
6: My name is Hossam Hayil I'm with the Friedrich Nama Foundation. One small comment is, uh, Just, uh, I I beg the whole world to stop calling it uh, the Islamic State, because it's not uh, in any way Islam. It's not, it does not represent Islam. Islam is a religion of peace, religion of uh, respecting others, and uh, this ISIS does not uh, represent it.
4: Thank you, thank you. Message well spoken. Okay, back to you, Jackie.
0: Faisal and Sean, maybe you could uh, respond to what was said about uh, surprising uh, even Dr. Abu Rahman, the the short period of time. He said, I would not have expected uh, a couple of thousand people in a relatively short period of time. We're talking about the the kingdom's stability in the last segment, and now we're talking about radicalization.
5: Well, if... um um, I think it is worrisome that two to 3,000 Jordanians have reportedly left to go fight with ISIS. But when I look at the radicalization sort of scenario in Jordan, what per- surprises me the most is not how radicalized it is, but how little it's radicalized compared to what it could been. I mean, if you look at the numbers across the region, Tunisia has sent 3,000 people, To fight for daesh it's it's 1500 miles from tunis to damascus and that's if there was a direct flight in the early days in jordan you could catch a bus or train to the border and join and clearly not many people did that 1500 have come from saudi arabia over a thousand alone from the uk plus france we know several hundred from the us the fact that jordan borders syria it is obviously not a fully democratic state it's a very stable authoritarian regime Things have not been great there financially or economically. There is still lingering poverty in many parts of the country. And we're told that things are never fully secure or stable there. The fact that only 2,000 have crossed the border and fought for Daesh, I think suggests that, as uh, Dr. Abu Rahman said, the level of radicalization is worrisome, but it could be a lot more.
0: Thank you, Sean. Faisal?
2: I just want to add a modifier here about the sort of movement of these uh, Islamist militants into Syria. All data indicates that most of these fighters go to join Jabhat al-Nusra, not ISIS. And that's different. They're not necessarily ideologically better, but the motivations are different. Uh, and the criteria for who you join in Syria is very complicated. Jabhat al-Nusra is an insurgent group that primarily fights the Syrian regime. Right. Uh, so out of sympathy, Inside Syria inside Syria. So out of sympathy for the uprising, because they're an effective group, well-resourced and disciplined, many persons who want to gravitate toward the conflict go there. And that's because they identify with that particular struggle. ISIS is something a bit more universalist and its treatment of the local populations has alienated quite a few people, even outside Syria.
0: I think that's an excellent point, because from our perspective, things can look so homogenous when, in fact, they're extremely complicated and nuanced. Salome Namat, you're a citizen, you have lived there. Could you talk about uh, what you've seen in terms of radicalization within the kingdom, maybe just some observations?
3: Yes, well, basically, the... Uh The population of Jordan, just like the population in the region, are uh, witnessing daily scenes of carnage on their TV screens, something that very little actually uh, is seen in in the United States. It's a daily dose of images uh, of bombardment by the Syrian regime forces of uh, civilian populations, babies being pulled out from underneath the rubble, women, men, Kids dying by the dozens on daily basis, and this is basically transformed immediately into people's living rooms. So these forces of radicalization can only increase with time. And I think every time there's an innocent civilian who is killed, somebody's going to be radicalized. But look at the macro uh, picture, and the, you know, how, where, where did ISIS come from? I mean, we did have Al Qaeda before it was strategically defeated in Iraq, if we may say so. Uh, ISIS is a, something that came to the scene just uh, a year ago, a year and a half ago, at maximum. In my view, uh, ISIS and the, or the Islamic State is the product of uh, years of mismanagement of Iraq, the uh, rule of the Maliki government, the pro-Iran, uh, Shiite-dominated government that has marginalized a lot of, uh, of the Sunni population, especially in Western Iraq. So if we're going to solve this problem, we cannot just deal with the repercussions and the Outcome of the crisis and, and uh, its manifestations. We really have to go to the root causes, and this is to stop the Iraqi government from doing, you know, marginalizing Sunnis and to stop these military campaigns and to stop Bashar Assad forces uh, from killing the civilian population.
0: Okay. Thank you so much, Salome. Um, Yusuf, let's go back to Aman and ask you. I wonder if you or, or, or Dr. Abu Rahman might talk about the strengths and weaknesses of the U.S. approach to fighting ISIS.
4: Thank you. Yes, uh, Dr. Abrahman has been uh, <laughs> uh, wanting to, to comment. Yes, thank you very, very much. I totally agree, by the way, with, the,
6: I think, Salame, uh, I think the problem of the American approach or strategy until now is that it deals with the outputs, not with the inputs. If you uh, are going to the American official discourse, they realized and they admitted that there are reasons, uh, causes of the rising of ISIS. And uh, as Salam mentioned, we talk here about the main reason. It is the Sunni crisis in Iraq and Syria and Lebanon. When you go through these three societies, you talk about millions of Sunnis. They are afraid about their identity, about their existence. Uh, so that it is a huge problem. Uh, so that it's not the question of ISIS. It's the question of the reason of the... Uh, recruitment to ISIS, this is the question. Yes. But when, uh, when you are going to the ground, what is happening now, it is only a military campaign against ISIS without having equal efforts to give uh, hopes to the Sunni society, to
8: give uh, so real solutions.
4: Thank you, Dr. Abou uh, Let's go to the audience now. Would you mention your name, please?
8: My name is Rami Dole, and I'm a co-founder of a Facebook group called Out and About, and our purpose is to build a society based on unified values. Uh, Now, I I was very glad to hear about the radicalization numbers that we've heard from Dr. Aburman and the analysis that we heard from the U.S. And the analysis that we heard from the U.S. is really very interesting. When we say that 2,000 people going and joining ISIS is not that heavy, we want to look at two factors. When we look at extremism, Today, we are looking at religion. In in history, we looked at race, color. So instead of looking at the the surface level of the extreme polarity, we need really to look down at the root reasons for such extremism. And we all know mainly extremism comes from economic and social pressures. It's not related to race, color, or religion. Once those things are solved, then we would find a huge diminishing of such extremism. Now, in Jordan... The beautiful thing that we have a very good level of education, intellectuality, and awareness levels, hmm. but we cannot avoid the fact that we do have economic and social pressures. So with those two forces joining together, we had the outcome of having 2,000 people today joining ISIS.
4: Let's take another question or comment.
8: Can I, uh, Muhammad,
4: can Please I... mention your name okay. and uh, I'm organization. I'm or a, uh, a
8: general student from the Yarmouk University in Irhut. The Syrian crisis and the Syrian conflict uh,
4: has begun from three years or now four years. Why now, just about three months ago or six months ago, the U.S. Army
8: just starting to have a big movement about strikes in uh, Syria?
4: Thank you. Thank you very much. Jackie, I'm sure the comments have uh, raised some questions with your audiences back in Philadelphia. I certainly Um, think uh, so,
0: Philadelphia. This is your moment Yes, would you step up to the microphone, please?
5: Hello, I'm, and- uh, I'm Max Dugan. I'm a program coordinator for Alba Stand Seeds of Culture, which is a Philadelphia-based nonprofit dedicated presenting, presenting and s- spreading Arab culture. My question is to our panelists, Faisal and Sean Yom, about um, Professor Yom, about what are the ways... You mentioned it very briefly about kind of stemming the ideological spread of radicalization. Um, what are those ways? Are those the more economic, uh, political solutions that um, one of the audience members in Jordan spoke about? Is there some sort of ideological approach based on like a shia sunni sort of divide? Um, I'm just curious what you you two have to say about that. Thank you.
2: Thank you for your question. Look, you know, uh, there's always going to be radicalism and ideologues and terrorism, but for it to resonate like this and for the, the, the ideologues and the jihadists to have an argument that's difficult to push back against, you have to address the extreme situation leading to an extreme reaction. And a sort of a glib answer, I know, not very satisfying, but the extreme situation is the situation my colleagues very accurately described in Iraq and Syria, and to a lesser extent Lebanon, but also there. As long as the other parties that are not jihadists aren't able to offer a satisfying military and political and governance answer then these people are the ones who are going to come and give the answer. And they've had some military success. And hey, it's, you know, these are civil wars, and if you can win and take territory and control it, you're the one who's going to attract recruits. And to an extent, even if they don't join because they've bought the ideology wholesale, they will. Uh, they'll form their attachments. They'll be severing every other attachment they have. And even the persons who don't join may develop some ideological sympathy. But one of the gentlemen in the audience asked a question about US policy, Mm -hmm. and I think he deserves an answer because it's a good question. But look, you know, the the reason that the United States has waited three years and then done nothing much except bomb ISIS, I assure you, not everybody in the United States agrees that this is the right thing to do, or everyone in Washington, Uh, but it's primarily because to begin with, after the legacy of Iraq and Syria, President Obama wants nothing to do with getting involved in Syria, uh, despite what you might hear. ISIS has been unlike the other groups explicit in its threat to the United States and its intention to attack it. America has made a very long historical investment in Iraq, and it feels partly responsible for the outcome, and of course Iraq is an oil-rich country. Last but not least, certainly not least when it comes to this administration, addressing the issue in Syria wholesale means deciding what we're going to do about the regime, and that means jeopardizing inevitably our relationship with Iran, Uh, And since this nuclear negotiation is such a high priority of the Obama administration, that's been something they've been loath to do. So again, I'm not satisfied with those answers, but I believe that that's an accurate analysis.
0: All right. Thank you so very much, Faisal Intani, Sean Yum, our distinguished Jordanian guests. Uh, We are going to take a break now, and when we come back, what the rest of the world should be doing to address the rise of the Islamic State and the refugee crisis in Jordan. I'm Jackie Leiden, and you're listening to Jordan on the Frontline, an international town hall from America abroad and the Jordan Media Institute. I'm joined by a live audience here in Philadelphia and one in Amman, Jordan. And our co-host there is Yusuf Mansour with the Jordan Media Institute. I want to say hello to everyone. I'd like to begin this segment of the program by talking about what the rest of the world should be doing to help fight against the rise of the Islamic State and the ongoing refugee crisis in Jordan, what to do to assist with that. Youssef, uh, we'll go to you first, if you don't mind. Let's hear
4: from Andrew Harper of the UN Refugee Agency. Your agency has reported that Jordan needs about $400 million just for next year alone.
1: Thanks, Yusuf, but that's just what UNHCR needs. I think um, the total agencies responding to the refugee crisis re- requires a um, billion dollars. And on top of that, the Jordan government and infrastructure requires probably several billion more dollars. We just can't be looking at this on a six-monthly or 12-monthly basis. We need to invest in them for a number of years because the refugees are going to stay here for a number of years. Yeah. And until such time that there's a political solution inside Syria and inside Iraq, the refugees are not going to be going home so we're going to need significant international support.
4: How have international donors reacted in the past and what kind of re- reaction do you expect for next year for this appeal? Well. We've received
1: about 50% of the funding that we required for this year and so we're almost living on a day-by-day basis so you, you see the pictures in the background of massive refugee camps but what we also need to take into account is that the vast majority of refugees don't even live in the refugee camps, they're in the community. The World Food Programme was in a position that they had no money to pay for the food for the refugees as of this month so it is really a, um, a dire situation. What we often find is that countries have money for weapons, they have money for armed interventions, but they often don't have money for refugees.
4: Uh, this money is needed just for the refugees and for uh, the well, direct impact.
1: Well, we're looking at an appeal for re- responding to the refugees but also supporting uh, the host communities, like the municipalities in Urbid, who just this city of Urbid has about 240,000 Syrian refugees. It's just such an enormous um, pressure on everyone. And it's worth noting that this year, the world has had more refugees than it's ever had before. This is not a great indicator to have uh, when the world is also saying that it doesn't have money to provide support to refugees.
4: Jordan has requested in the past about $4 billion for support Mm -hmm. and helping out Mm -hmm. with the refugees. Jackie, let's go back to you and hear what your audience thinks uh, that the U.S. role should be in this crisis.
0: Thank you, Yusuf. Yes, we uh, would like to do that, so may I have your name, please, and your question. Uh,
4: my name is Bob Groves. I'm
2: an interested citizen. The most basic need seems to be for the refugees to be able to return to Syria. So my question is, if the U.S. and the West could reach a nuclear deal with Iran, would that somehow enable Iran to use its influence to rid the world of the Assad regime? And if not, what other scenario is there to rid the world of the Assad regime so the refugees can return?
0: Big and serious question. Uh, Faisal and Sean, would you like to tackle that?
2: Mm -hmm. (laughs) I I don't mind.
5: Um, That's a really great question. And the most important thing to consider, when. Evaluating the potential of a refugee return is not the kind of regime that's in power in Damascus. It could be run by Assad, it could be run by some other ruler, leadership, incumbent, Republican, autocrat, or whatnot. The most important thing is, is there a stable state in place? No matter what regime rules in Damascus what you need to have is a stable state where there is A, everyday security, B, rule of law, C, the provision of basic goods and consumables, and D, an expectation that your basic rights will be protected. Now, is that happening now in most of Syria? Absolutely not. And would the Assad regime be a contender to provide that level of state security again? Uh, You know, I don't think it can. I think it's lost much of its legitimacy, and I think that it won't last for another five or 10 years, unless Iran seriously upgrades the kind of assistance it's giving it. Um, but is there another contender within Syria? I, I don't see it at all. Um, all the reports that we know are coming off Syria are that while Nusra and Daesh and other opposition groups do hold territory, there's a difference between holding territory and actually governing territory, providing water, providing electricity, providing health care, providing education, providing a basic level of, of public subsistence. And that's absent in most of Syria, whether or not your titular leader in your community is a member of the Baath Party and answers to Assad, or is a so-called militant for one of these groups. So I think the question is not so much about regime type or who leads, but rather how they lead and what kind of state is in place from a broader picture.
0: Thank you, Sean.
2: Yeah, no, uh, but separate questions. One is the, the Iran issue and the other is what the answer is. I think, you know, my conversation with the Iranians, they've been very transparent about this as a thing. For them, Yes, on the one hand, they're not wedded to Assad, and there are circumstances under which they would sort of jettison him, and perhaps a nuclear deal is one of those, although I'm not sure it is. But what they seem hung up on is what regime in Syria would guarantee their strategic interests in Lebanon. They can't imagine a scenario in which anybody else will do that as well as Assad did. (coughs) Frankly, I think they're right. So, yes, in principle... The solution has to involve Iran. Frankly, I mean, I really struggle to imagine how it could actually happen right now uh, with this regime, with their geopolitical priorities. I don't think it can. Uh, the other is uh, the question of well, how to get rid of Assad and, and then what.
0: And still combat uh, ISIS.
2: And, and still and, combat ISIS. And can ISIS. it be
0: combated? Unless of course, you
2: get rid and, of and address and address the question of what, what the refugees' real problem is. Yes, I agree with you. I mean, I'm not a humanitarian aid expert. I think the solution to it is is the solution in Syria. Um, But I'd like to sort of push back a bit on what you said about was there another contender and what happens. No, you're right, there isn't another contender. But I don't think the question of whether we push Assad out or help to do that or whatever or whether it should be is contingent on there being another contender at hand that we can immediately deploy into Syria. I think the, the question is, is there a political process in Syria that could lead to groups that hold enough popular support and have enough capability to run the country well?
0: Thank you. Dr.
4: Abaruman, you were nodding your head while the speakers were were talking. Yes, I
6: think the problem of the American approach, it's focused on the military, solution, and the real solution is in the political process, not in the military solution. If you give uh, hopes to people in Syria and Iraq, especially to the Sunni people, if you give guarantee to the Alawi people or to the uh, Christians in Syria and Iraq, I think the roots of ISIS, the causes of ISIS, the ability of recruitment to ISIS will collapse in short time. So that there is the problem and there is the key of the solution.
4: Thank you, Dr. Boroman. Thank you. Back to you, Jackie.
0: Yes, we have a couple more questions I'd really like to get in here. Before we conclude, from our audience, would you please step up to the microphone and give us your name?
2: Yes, my name is Curtis Adams. I'm a history grad student at Temple University. My question is, what role does geopolitics play in both the continued escalation and suppression of the Syrian problem?
0: Well, I think geopolitics, again, we're going back to regional partners. Thank you. Uh, and we haven't spoken a lot about that. Uh, Sean, would you maybe like to address that? Uh,
5: Yeah, everything. (laughs) Next question. No, um, uh, geopolitics can play into the equation in one vital way in looking at the way that the Syrian conflict has been portrayed as a broader sectarian clash. Now, most of us, including those of us who have lived or traveled or worked or studied, in Jordan extensively know that much of the sectarian discourse is completely constructed. There is no Shia threat in Jordan, unless you count maybe a few dozen people who pass through every year. It's not as if Iran has territorial ambitions in Jordan. But the way that the Syrian conflict has been portrayed in an implicit way in the discourse of regional geopolitics between the Saudi government, the Qatari government, the Iranian government, the Egyptian government, the Jordanian government is one in which the U.S. is now seen as a major player on the side of certain predominantly Sunni Arab regimes like Saudi Arabia. Um, and Turkey and just to a lesser extent Egypt and trying to somehow stem the tide of the Assad regime from I I think surviving too long and the reason why the Syrian conflict has complicated this is that now as We've all pointed out the US is implicitly helping the Syrian regime by bombing some of its most militant enemies and At the same time, it doesn't want the Assad regime to be in there any longer. Our State Department has explicitly said the Assad regime is no longer the legitimate government of Syria, to which the Iranians say, no, it is until it's overthrown. So it's really impossible, in my view, to look at the Syrian conflict from a regional perspective, without looking at all these crisscrossing alliances that are binding regional partners together, they, they, they show how complex geopolitics can be, and ultimately how contradictory they can become, and most of all, how unproductive they are, especially when you look at the plight of the average Syrian refugee.
0: Thanks, Sean. Youssef, I think we'd like to hear a little more from your audience before we go. We were looking at uh, some young ladies who really looked like they were eager to uh, ask you a question, so I guess I'm sticking up for them. Yes. My name is Siham al
7: student of University of Yirmouk. Uh, my question is, uh, is the Syrian crisis will take much more time, and uh, how many impact will this crisis affect to Jordan economic? Thank you.
4: Okay. Our guests, would you like to respond to this, or...? Uh, the question about
6: the future, Dr. Youssef, uh, about the solution, uh, frankly, I'm not optimistic. I don't see that there is a political horizon in the um, in the short uh, term. Uh, the political process doesn't work uh, yet. The regional uh, global compromise deal is still stopped. So that I think the suffering of the refugees in the human level, in the economic level, and the suffering of the uh, neighborhood will continue uh, next year. Uh, I'll
4: give you a break now so you can uh be optimistic <laughs> and, and give us some optimistic thoughts. We'll start with Andrew. Uh, any optimistic thoughts, uh, wrap-up uh, Well, well I think session?
1: I think we have to believe in the future. If we don't believe in the future, then what, what hope do we have? And uh, I think we've got to say as of 2015, the overall strategy and approach has to be vastly different. So, the hope and the, the optimism has to be coming from us and everyone who is here, that we could influence the future and that the approach has to be to get children into school to not make the Jordanian children suffer because of what they're doing in relation to providing school spaces for Syrians. We also need to ensure that there is a future. People believe they have a future because if they don't have a future then they will be subject to radicalization and that will then become a vicious circle of Problems for the future.
4: Dr. Aburroman, do you have any optimistic thoughts or something that gives you optimism about the future? Do you want me to change my opinion in a few minutes? No, don't change it. Don't change it. <laughs> so what would make you optimistic about the future? Um,
6: I, I have to agree with you that we have to believe in the future. We have not to give up. But I hope that the Americans will not return back to the fault that they did before September 11, when they conducted a deal with the authoritarian regime. The regimes which create terrorism cannot be partner in fighting terrorism. With this beautiful thought <laughs> and very
4: optimistic <laughs> thought, we will go back to you, Jeff.
0: Well, thank you. Faisal Itani, Shanyam, thanks for being with us. Can you just leave us briefly with maybe some of the positives that might be gleaned? From this, if possible,
2: from where I stand, and I, I live in washington d c there are many circles uh, of influence within the United States government that have a different idea of, of how to solve this problem than that that 's been carried out over the past three years now. Uh, whether or not they will be able to move policy in a different direction when there are political changes in america i don 't know the answer to that,
5: but it 's possible, so that 's where my hope falls
0: all right thank you sean
5: um, it 's difficult to be optimistic about this administration's policies because so much of it seems to be a continuity of the last one. But I will say this, you know, Jordan has faced repeated refugee crises from its west, bordering the West Bank and Palestine and Israel. It's faced refugee crises from the east, from Iraq. It's faced a refugee crisis from the north, from Syria. So, It only has one more side to go. (laughs) So hopefully the future will look a lot more stable. On a a more serious note, I agree with my panelists. I think that people are in Washington and also in the UN and the Jordanian government and, and some other Arab governments that understand that a militaristic policy doesn't work in the long term. There are political and social and economic origins Of extremism and they differ from place to place and from context to context and only by understanding the particular origins of that problem in Jordan which certainly I think doesn't include bombing targets in Syria and killing other civilians I think will we get to the bottom of this mess and stabilize and, and try to enact some modicum of national stability.
0: Thank you so much, everyone. It's been a fantastic discussion. And this concludes Jordan on the Frontline and International Town Hall. Thank you. Shukran, shukran. And we'd like to thank our partners at the Jordan Media Institute in Amman and my co-host, Yusuf Mansour. Thank you, Jackie.
4: And I would like to thank our guests, uh, Dr. Hamad Abu Rahman our great analyst and political writer and uh, Mr. Andrew Harper of the U.N. Refugee Agency. And thank you all. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, and also to our audience.
0: So once again, our thanks to Sean Yam of Temple University, Faisal Itani no of the Atlantic Council, The producers of this hour are Mia LaBelle and Rob Sachs. We thank our co-hosts, the Jordan Media Institute. Facilities in Jordan were provided by Jordan Media City. Also, thanks to Fora TV for providing live web streaming of this program and to WHYY for hosting us. You can hear past programs by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes, find us on the TuneIn or Public Radio International apps, or visit our website, americabroad.org. I'm Jackie Leiden. This is America Abroad from Public Radio International. Thank you. Support for this show was provided by the Doris Duke Foundation for Islamic Art, the Henry Luce Foundation, and the Carnegie Corporation of New York. So, America Abroad listeners, if you didn't make it to the live discussion in Philadelphia, you still have a chance to join the conversation. Feel free to comment on this town hall on PRI, Public Radio International, which you find at PRI.org, or via Twitter, Facebook, or SoundCloud. We welcome your feedback on this and other programs, as well as suggestions for future documentaries and town halls for America Abroad to Explore.